Well, before I begin, I also want to say how proud I am of Pastor Jeff, our leadership, our Chapel Street staff, for how all the ways they've adjusted to this new way of being the church during this time. And how proud I am of you as the Chapel Street family. So many ways, so many people are looking to love and serve their neighbors. And we've always believed here that the church is at her best when we are outside the walls, when we are serving and loving where we are in our communities and our neighborhoods. So let's keep at it. Good job, church. Well, a number of years ago, I was standing beside a Little League baseball field uh, watching one of my boys practicing with his teammates, and I overheard a group of dads talking just a few feet away from me. I didn't hear the whole conversation, but one of the guys was talking about a fishing trip he'd just made to Wisconsin, and he said something like this. He said, we had our own cabin on a pristine lake. We had a cooler full of beer, and every night we grilled up fresh fish. It was heaven, he said. I thought to myself, heaven? Really? I don't think that word means what you think it means. But I didn't say anything, and I'm kind of glad I didn't, because as I look back now and think about it, I think those guys might have been closer to the truth than they realized. Today we are in the second week of our series called Surprised by Hope. And Pastor Jeff actually outlined this series weeks before any of us ever heard of COVID-19 or before things like shelter-in-place and social distancing were defining our lives. But it's just a perfect time for this series about hope. And he began last week by talking about our living hope. And he encouraged us to all to consider memorizing all or part of this beautiful passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. So I'm going to review that for us today. And as I read, I want you at home, where you're watching right now, to recite these words or just say them with me out loud. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Today I want to talk about the surprise of heaven. And to do that, we're going to go to the great book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible and look at what the, John the Apostle says to us as he has this vision into what God has promised. Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to read the first five verses. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
want to talk about three surprises today. And the first is, you know more about heaven than you think. You know more about heaven than you think. Uh, in the summer before my senior year of college, way back in 1977, I made my first trip outside the U.S. I had a chance to join a Christian basketball team on a tour of Europe. And right at the end of that trip, we had a couple of free days, so a teammate and I decided we wanted to take a train ride to Paris. We were in Switzerland at the time. So we jumped on a train, rode all night to Paris. We'd never been there before, never seen it before. And in those days, before the Internet, before Google, we'd only seen postcards of Paris. So we got off the train and just started walking. And about 15 minutes into our walk, we walked straight into this little park, and there it was, the world-famous Arc de Triomphe. We couldn't believe our luck. It was like eight feet tall. If you bent over, you could kind of walk through the, 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 the archway like this person in the, in the photo I'm showing you. And we immediately started posing next to it, leaning against it, taking pictures with our little plastic Instamatic cameras. Some of you will remember those. So imagine our shock and surprise when just about an hour later, we saw the real thing. 164 feet tall, 148 feet wide, way, way bigger than that little replica we had seen in the park. Now here's my point with that. Even though I'd never seen the real thing, I had an idea, kind of a vague idea. I had a picture in my mind. I just didn't know how big and magnificent it really was. And I think that's how the Bible talks to us about the new heaven and new earth. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I think most of us have been taught to think of heaven as being out there somewhere. That is, we think of heaven as being out somewhere in the clouds. In fact, Maria Shriver has written a best-selling little children's book called What's Heaven? And it's a sweet little book designed to help children cope with the death of a loved one. But in this book, she says, Heaven is a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk. And if you're good throughout your life, you can go there. Now, it sounds nice, but that's not really how the Bible talks about heaven. But I think often it's the way we also, as believers, talk about the hope of the gospel. You know, believe in Jesus, get your sins forgiven, and go to heaven when you die. And of course, that's true. It's just not the whole picture that God gives us. According to the Bible, heaven is actually a little more like fishing with good friends in Wisconsin than sitting on clouds playing harps. Let me try to explain what I mean. When we experience beauty, for example, like, say, Victoria Falls in Africa. One of my sons visited this place just last summer. Or maybe the great ocean road on the coast of Australia. Or maybe... The Rainbow Mountains of northern China, and by the way, that's a real place in the world. I'd love to see it. When we experience beauty, we are experiencing and responding as creatures made in the image of God, designed and created for beauty. Listen to how John describes heaven in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. John is saying that the new heaven and new earth will be filled with indescribable beauty. 
And when we experience peace, when our souls are at rest, when we sense the presence and the protection and the provision of God himself, we're experiencing a kind of echo of heaven. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Doesn't that sound good right about now? And when we experience joy, one of my sons and I were watching um, reruns of Cubs games this past week. It's the only baseball you can watch now. But we happened to catch part of the rerun of Game 7 of the World Series in 2016, which the Cubs won. And we experienced again that great joy. Or the joy of a baby being born. The joy of a wedding celebration. When we experience joy, we are responding as creatures created in the image of God. Created for joy. Did you know heaven itself? It's described as the wedding supper of the Lamb, the joy of a wedding. So when we experience peace or beauty or joy, we are experiencing sort of echoes, sort of faint images of what God has always intended for us to experience, what the new heaven and new earth promised to us. In his essay called The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, For they are not the thing itself, They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In another place, he says it like this, heaven is that remote music we were born remembering. So I think you know more about heaven than you think. The second surprise I want to mention today is that heaven is also closer than you think. Heaven is closer than you think. Go back to that dad talking about the fishing trip. I know it sounds ridiculous, completely ridiculous, to compare heaven to a fishing trip in Wisconsin. Maybe the Rainbow Mountains of China or some other spectacular place on planet Earth, but Wisconsin? Listen again, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Did you see the surprise? I put it in a different color just so you might notice. John is saying that at the end of all things, it's not that we go to heaven, but that heaven comes to us. Now let's jump to another great text from the Apostle Paul. I want to encourage you to stay with me here because this text is just full of things we need to understand. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time The sufferings of this present time, so timely, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says, in this hope we were saved. What hope is he talking about? Paul here describes hope in two ways. First, he says, it's the hope of the redemption of creation. Did you notice how many times Paul used the word creation in that passage? The creation waits. The creation was subjected to futility. The creation will be set free from corruption. The creation has been groaning. Paul is saying here that the whole creation, the whole universe is fallen, infected by sin, broken. So not only are we as human beings not as God intended, but the creation itself is not as God intended it to be. For disease was not God's design. Death was not God's design. The Bible promises that just as God created all things in the beginning, so he will recreate all things at the end. In his book, Surprised by Hope, theologian N.T. Wright says, God made heaven and earth. At the last, he will remake both and join them together forever. So salvation or eternal life is not so much going to heaven, but being raised to new life in God's new heaven and new earth. Secondly, Paul says, the hope we look forward to is the redemption of our bodies. Here's a question I'd like to ask just for conversation's sake. If you could inhabit the physical body of anyone in the world today for just one day. If you could inhabit someone's body for one day, whose body would you choose? I choose LeBron James because 6'8", 280 pounds of just pure muscle and athleticism. Now that would be so much fun. Given the choice, I think most of us would choose the body of someone else. We choose the body of someone that we regard as maybe stronger, healthier, maybe more beautiful, in my case, younger. And in a way, I think this is the hope Paul's talking about. Now, the New Testament teaches us that, that at death, a believer immediately enters the presence of Jesus himself. In Philippians 1, Paul says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. From the cross, Jesus spoke to the dying thief by his side and said, Truly, I say to you today you will be with me in paradise. So what does Paul mean by being with Christ? What does Jesus mean by paradise? Tim Keller writes that heaven is the environment of God's glory. Heaven is the environment of God's glory. So to be with Christ, to be with Jesus in paradise, means to be in the presence of unspeakable joy, unimaginable glory, and overwhelming love. So if you have a loved one who has put his or her faith in Jesus and has died in recent days or months, you can know with great confidence that he or she is in a mysterious way with Jesus today, dwelling in the environment of God's glory. That's a promise. But we can also know that there's more. Because the Bible's equally clear that at the second coming of Jesus, also a promise, we will receive new spiritual bodies. Again, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits here refers to the beginning of the harvest season, meaning there's more to come. For as by man came death, that's Adam, and by man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. That's us. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, what is a spiritual body? That sounds contradictory to us. It even sounds, in a way, nonsensical. But think just for a moment about the resurrected Jesus. We're going to celebrate Easter two weeks from this morning. When Jesus rose from the tomb, he had a body. That's the whole point of resurrection. He was not a ghost. In fact, he ate fish on purpose with his followers just to show them that he was real, that his body was real. In his resurrection body, Jesus was recognizable. He showed the wounds in his hands and feet and sighed to Thomas so he would know it was Jesus. But he was also different. His body was also different. He could appear in rooms with locked doors. His resurrection body seemed to transcend time and space. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, listen to this, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So just as the resurrected Jesus had a body, a glorious body, a spiritual body, so also the promise is we too will have spiritual bodies. I had a chance a couple of weeks ago to visit my mom and dad. They live in Ohio with my brother. It was the occasion was my mom's 90th birthday. My dad's nearly 87. I love being with him. We had a great time together. But it's also, in some ways, hard to watch. And we all know this because in this life, to grow older means also to gradually become weaker, more feeble, more frail, more prone to disease and pain. We all know what that aging process is like. But what if, imagine this, what if in our new redeemed spiritual bodies, it's not that way? What if growing older in the new heaven and new earth means not growing weaker and more feeble, but growing older means to grow stronger continuously, to grow more energetic, to grow more vital in every way? Imagine. Now you might be thinking, but why? Why do we need new spiritual bodies in heaven? We're going to get there in just a minute, but here's a surprise for now. Heaven will include the new earth says God's word. Redeemed creation. Heaven means redeemed bodies. See, God has not promised so much to take us out of the world, but to redeem the entire creation and then invites us through resurrection to be part of that great redemption. That's why I say heaven is closer than you think. 
Third surprise I want to talk about today is that there will be more to do in heaven than you can even imagine. There will be more to do than you can imagine. When I was a boy, I grew up in a church, probably like many of you, where we had Sunday morning Sunday school. We had Sunday morning worship. But my church also had Sunday night church. We had evening service every Sunday evening. And as a boy, that really wasn't my favorite thing. I know now, looking back, that those evening services were only about an hour long. But when I was 10 or 12, those services seemed to last like five hours. We had sang like 47 songs. My dad's sermon was like two hours long. So when I heard that heaven was eternal worship at the throne of God, uh, I thought I'd already been through eternal worship. And heaven wasn't that exciting an idea for me. Listen to what Revelation says, chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And they shall reign on the earth. That's us. That's what God has planned. And that doesn't sound like a long, boring Sunday night church service. Not only will we worship the Bible says, we will reign with Christ. Now, what does that mean? In his book called Heaven, Randy Alcorn writes, in the new heaven and new earth, we will laugh, eat, and drink, tell stories, make crafts, build, garden, care for animals, compose music, enjoy physically demanding activities, and tend and manage and rule the earth. We will be restored to a new earth without sin and death to fulfill God's original plan of stewarding the universe for his eternal glory. I wonder if that surprises you. Does it surprise you that we will have things to do? Does it surprise you that God will have work for us to do? If we go back to Genesis, we see that God gave Adam a work to do before the fall into sin and death. He was to work and care for the garden. He was to name all the animals. He was to have dominion over all creation. So, it only makes sense that if God is going to recreate and redeem the heavens and the earth, he will also have work for us to do. Not work as drudgery. Not work as just for a paycheck, but work as passion, as fun, work as adventure, work as praise. So often we use the phrase, rest in peace when someone dies. You know, R.I.P. And while that's true, we will rest from our earthly pains and toils and labors. In the new heaven and new earth, it will not be an eternal nap time. That's not what the Bible teaches. We will worship, we will work, we will serve, we will live, we will reign with Jesus. There will be more to do in heaven than we could even begin to imagine. Last week, Jeff began the series by saying, you can tell where someone's hope is by how they live. He said, what we hope for shows in what we live for. And that's true. In the summer of 1985, my brother Joe, who's a pastor now, and I had the chance to lead a six-week sports evangelism team to South America, the country of Bolivia. And during one stretch toward the end of that trip, we had 
um, a particularly grueling three days of travel. We were in the Altiplano region of that country, which is in the western frontier. It's a spectacular region, but very unforgiving. About 9,000 feet above sea level, uh, arid, very dry, very cold, dotted with these small little mining uh, towns inhabited by the indigenous Quechua people. Uh, we played a series of three games in three of these villages in three days. And during that entire three-day stretch, we had no clean water that we could trust anyway to drink. We drank bottled soft drinks. Uh, we had uh, no real meals. The only meal I remember having was uh, fried eggs and some dangerous-looking sausage. And we didn't have showers. We just stayed in our uniforms, put some sweatshirts on, jumped on the next train, and went to the next village. Uh, so by the time we boarded that train for the last all-night trip, we were tired and hungry and smelly and most definitely not filled with the joy of the Lord. It was so cold on the train that night that uh, at some point there was ice coating the inside of the windows and some ice even on the floor. My brother and I sat in the same seat. We used a sleeping bag, unzipped it, put it over uh, both of us like a giant cocoon just trying to stay warm through the night. And in the middle of that night, I woke up to a, to a pitiful sound. Uh, it sounded like a child weeping. It was like, <laughs> and then I realized it was my brother. It was a grown man. It was so uncomfortable. The train pulled into the station at like 3, 3 3.30 in the morning, a town called Oruru, which is on the outskirts of La Paz in Bolivia. We dragged all our gear off and tried to hail down taxis to take us to the hotel we were going to stay in that night which we were sure was just going to be another Bolivian hotel, no hot water, mattress stuffed with straw, that sort of thing. So imagine our surprise when our taxi pulled up in the darkness in front of a, a five-story, modern-looking hotel. It looked like it had been dropped, uh, like a Hyatt Regency dropped out of Chicago right into the middle of Bolivia. The glowing neon sign said, Hotel Terminal. It means like hotel at the terminal or hotel at the end of the road. And within minutes, we were standing underneath steaming hot showers. And by 6 a.m., we were eating steak and eggs for breakfast. I will never forget the joy of hotel terminal. Now, imagine if I were to make that same exact trip again with that, with, with that same group, but I knew about hotel terminal. Same trip, same cold, same lack of food, same lack of showers, all that. Would that knowledge, would the hope of Hotel Terminal change the way I experienced that journey? You bet it would. It would change everything. That hope would change how I experienced the cold, how I experienced the hunger, how I experienced the discomfort. It would change how I behaved. I would gladly have shared my sleeping bag with the others. I would gladly have shared whatever water or food I had with the others because I knew what was coming. And I would have walked up and down that train telling everyone on the train about Hotel Terminal. I would have said, I know you're tired. I know you're hungry. I know you're cold, but hang on. Hang on. Hotel Terminal is coming. See, that's the hope that God has given us. That's the hope God has promised. We have a living hope. We have a certain hope. That hope is the new heaven and the new earth where Jesus will reign his eternal kingdom. And that hope, rushes back into our lives, into our journeys today, and shapes who we are and how we are to live. Because that hope 
in his kingdom means his kingdom has already begun and is already here now. I hope you stay with us next week as Pastor Sterling talks to us about the surprise of the kingdom. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, how I thank you for your word today. We are living in a time of great uncertainty, a time of anxiety, even fear. And we are more aware now than ever, perhaps, that the world is a broken place. But the truth is, it always has been since the Garden of Eden. The world is broken. We are broken. But you have given us hope, this living hope, a certain hope, that by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you will redeem all things. You will redeem all creation, and you will redeem and recreate us to share in your eternal kingdom. So by your Spirit, drive this great hope deep into our hearts and shape us now into the people and the church that you've called us to be. It's in your name that we pray.